I think the first step is to help people realize that you are the architect of your brain, that you do have a level of agency that you can choose day to day, you know, based on how you use your brain, you can really shape it. And so we know that when you're comfortable or when you're on autopilot, that truly is an enemy of brain health that really can lead to decline more quickly. You know, you'll hear the phrase like never stop learning or, you know, be a lifelong learner. And truly when it comes to the brain, it is sort of a use it or lose it type things. When you're curious, you're sparking a special chemical cocktail of neurotransmitters, things like dopamine and norepinephrine. And that's, you know, when you're curious, you'll notice when you're looking it up, that learning, when it doesn't feel like learning, it doesn't feel like effort, is because your neuropharmacy, your brain chemistry is working in your favor. And that's something that curiosity really ignites that is really potent and powerful and wonderful and great for keeping your brain healthy. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. This is episode number 218 in what I like to call my curiosity adventure. That's a lot of opportunities to talk with people about all the ways they leverage curiosity in their days. We often talk about people's working definition of curiosity. Descriptions vary and usually include some combination of motivation, desire, novelty, learning, opportunity. Everyone has their own way of coming at the question, which is sort of the point and delight of the show. And I appreciate the weekly nudges to revisit my own thoughts on the subject. A few weeks ago, psychologist Michiko Sakaki encouraged us to reframe our thinking about aging, not as a decline, but as a process of gaining knowledge. I found that both really helpful and very thought-provoking. And when I began to look at the work being done at the Center for Brain Health, I began wondering if it might be helpful to rethink of curiosity as a process by which our brain exercises. And as with other exercise, something that helps our brains be healthy and strong. The Center for Brain Health is a cognitive neuroscience research center at the University of Texas, Dallas. A major focus at the center is the Brain Health Project, a 10-year research study working to measure, define, and improve brain health for adults of all ages. Full disclosure, I am a registered participant in the study, but I have to confess, I have not been a very diligent one. Dr. Julie Frattentoni is head of research integration and partnerships at the Center for Brain Health. She's a cognitive neuroscientist with a specialty in making neuroscience approachable. That's something I appreciate. She creates tools that help people become proactive about their brain health by building healthy habits. Dr. Frattentoni leads the user experience and content creation for the Brain Health Project leveraging behavioral science in creating a dashboard and mobile app where participants can access everything from assessments to coaching and training. She also leads the Center's Kindness Enterprise, a research and translational program seeking to uncover and harness the brain's capacity for kindness, empathy, and compassion as critical components of overall brain health and well-being. And She maintains an active presence on social media where she offers tips and tricks and 
gentle encouragement to just be good to our brains. At the heart of the center's work is a science of neuroplasticity, that our brains are works in progress, capable of remarkable and continued growth and strengthening, but also inevitable recorders of how we treat them. The Center for Brain Health likes to say they want to empower people to be the architects of their own brains. So what role does curiosity play in all that? Does the science support my signature assertion that we should all choose to be curious? I'm delighted to have Dr. Julie Frattentoni here today to help me answer that question and so many others. So welcome, Julie. Hi, so happy to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So, okay, what is brain health? Brain health is a new category of health. It is different than mental health. It's different than, say, physical health, although it does incorporate those things. So brain health is truly your ability to thrive within your life context. And it really, it goes beyond just previous definitions of having a healthy brain was just the absence of disease. We need to go beyond just because you're not sick doesn't mean that you're healthy. So really this idea of what is it? what does it mean to, to thrive and to flourish and to be able to have the capacity to do the things you need to do in your life, that's, that's a short definition of brain health. So what can one do to make the most of our capacity to thrive? Well, most people are probably familiar with things like diet and sleep and exercise and, you know, really taking care of the, the hardware, if you will. What the Center for Brain Health and several decades of research there have focused on is more of the software of the how you use your brain every day. And so this is what we would call the cognitive part or the executive function kind of skills. And so... The way that you approach or kind of think about your thinking, another fancy term for that is metacognition. There's different ways that you can approach your day, approach your life, approach the way that you process information. And those, there's say maybe a, a brain healthier way to do it. And then there's a way that may contribute to decline. And so how do you help me, others, be architects of their own brains? I mean, what goes into that? Yeah, I think the first step is to help people realize that you are the architect of your brain, that you do have a level of agency that you can choose day to day, you know, based on how you use your brain, you can really shape it. And so that is, like you said, the definition of neuroplasticity. So the first thing is realizing one, I actually can do something. And then the next step would be, okay, what what do I do? And that is something that we have been teaching people in all different populations from middle school to you know college athletes to the military, veterans, uh, corporate executives. And really now through the Brain Health Project, it's open up to anyone that wants to participate in the research and we put it online. But essentially we've come up with, not come up with, we've researched and, and found evidence to support that a set of nine strategies we call the training SMART. It stands for Strategic Memory Advanced Reasoning Training. And so this is all about how to be more strategic with your brain, how to calm a stressed and busy brain, and then how to push yourself to be a more flexible thinker, increase innovation and creativity. So those are kind of the three big buckets. And I'm happy to give you an example from each one. Please do. Yeah. So in this first bucket um, where we're talking about 
sort of strategic thinking or it's it's really more about how you manage your mental energy, which is such a big deal because we have a limited capacity of our attention and our mental energy and stress really contributes to that. So this one has to do with just day-to-day, something that probably most people do maybe every day without realizing, and that's multitasking. And so people don't realize that multitasking actually adds a lot of stress to your brain. It increases cortisol levels, the stress hormone. And when you're trying to do two things simultaneously, like texting and driving or you know talking on the phone and watching something on TV, those are examples of your brain is having to rapidly switch back and forth between those two things. And so it's causing stress. It causes more errors. It actually takes you longer. You might think you're being productive and doing two things at once, but really it's actually taking longer. And then when you make mistakes, you have to go back and fix them. So one tip that we have from that is to do the opposite of multitasking, which is single tasking, which is just focusing on one thing at a time and really blocking distractions, putting your phone on, you know, do not disturb, shutting the door, making sure that when you need to do deeper focused work, that you are able to just do that one thing at a time. So you had somewhere in your copious materials, there was a list of the top 10 ways to take care of your brain. And right smack in the middle of that list was stay curious. Talk to me about how curiosity helps us take care of our brains. Absolutely. So one thing, you know, you'll hear the phrase like never stop learning or, you know, be a lifelong learner. And truly when it comes to the brain, it is sort of a use it or lose it type thing. So, you know, we see the largest declines. We start to see a decline in the brain, the frontal lobe in particular, around age 40. And this is just kind of part of what we see now as quote unquote, normal aging. I don't think it's normal to decline. I think that our brain is is built to last if we take care of it. But kind of the typical trajectory that we're seeing right now is that we start to see a decline around age 40. And so a big reason that we kind of think is a lot of times 40 is an age where people hit a comfortable point in their career. They're no longer, you know, trying to climb the ladder. They're not being challenged in that way, or they're just sort of kind of in that survival mode, maybe raising a family, maybe, you know, they're just at a point where they're comfortable. And so we know that when you're comfortable or when you're on autopilot, that truly is an enemy of brain health that really can lead to decline more quickly. And similarly, another point of life is when people retire and they stop working and again, are no longer being challenged. They're no longer learning, they're no longer exercising that curiosity muscle as much as maybe they were before. And so we know that that's something that you need to do on a regular basis. Now, curiosity can look, I'm sure as you've explored with all your different interviews, many different ways. There's many different ways to exercise that um, in the same way that there's a lot of different types of learning. It doesn't need to be you know, in school or taking a class. Learning can be conversations, learning about people. It can be learning new dance moves or yoga poses. And then it can be more traditional, like listening to a podcast or, you know, reading a book. But I think for people to understand that learning helps to it, it's stimulating to the brain. It creates new neural pathways, new connections. And that to tie back to what you said in the beginning, I loved how it was aging is this exercise in gaining knowledge, or I would even say gaining like wisdom and experience and those things a lot of people will say, if you could have your brain at any age, what age would you want? And a lot of people will say like, oh, I want my 20-year-old brain that had really fast processing speed and you know, quick memory or working memory, great recall. 
but we would say, you know, my, my our CEO, Dr. Sandy Chapman, she would say, I I want my brain now. My brain it has a wealth of experience and knowledge and learning and making mistakes and getting to you know have all of that learned experience. And so back to your your point, your the centering back to curiosity and just the importance of how that keeps the brain nimble is it truly when you're curious, you're sparking a special chemical cocktail of neurotransmitters, things like dopamine and norepinephrine. And that's, you know, when you're curious, you'll notice if you've ever gone down a rabbit trail, you know, Googling something or like, oh, I've got to look something up, or you've just read a book and then you have all these questions about, you know, that time period. When you're looking it up, that learning, when it doesn't feel like learning, it doesn't feel like effort, is because your your neuropharmacy, your brain chemistry is working in your favor. And that's something that curiosity really ignites that is really potent and powerful and wonderful and great for keeping your brain healthy. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by cognitive neuroscientist, Dr. Julie Fratantoni. We're talking about being the architects of our own brains. So speaking of the kind of fun things that curiosity can do for our brains, you do this research on kindness. Is there an intersection there? And if so, what does it look like? Yeah, so curiosity and kindness both share this sense of openness towards others, kind of an openness towards other ideas. Um, There's sort of a lack of fear there. I have heard it said once that curiosity is intellectual courage. And this idea to kind of admit that you don't know something or there's a knowledge gap or that there's, there's unknown and kind of not being afraid to explore that unknown, but instead being excited and kind of moving towards it. And so you sort of see that same thing with kindness is like not having a fear of someone who's different or something, you know, uncertainty of a situation, but that I can move towards that, towards that person or, or whatever the situation is. So they're both sort of this open posture and they both are a really nice anecdote to, you know, anxiety or something that like getting caught in a spiral or sort of um, being able to ask yourself a question or sort of move out of that. And I think the reason the more biological basis for that would be that when we are in a stress response or a fear or anxiety response, that is the body's your sympathetic nervous system is reacting, that fight or flight system. And so it's going to narrow your options. It narrows it to fight, flight, freeze. And it does that out of survival. It makes it easier. You don't have to think through all these numerous options. It's just like, here's your three, just pick and go, right? And survive. But when we want to be curious, we want the opposite of that, right? We want to open up all the possibilities. We want to consider every different angle and look at at it from all sides. And so it's very hard to be curious when you are feeling stressed or afraid or anxious. So I'm kind of switching out of that. And so one great way to do that, that Judd Brewer talks a lot about in his work with mindfulness and anxiety and kind of beating addiction through mindfulness is this curiosity of when you catch yourself in a spiral or you're feeling that panic to ask yourself a question, to get really curious about what it is that you're experiencing. And so, yeah, and then he had kind of also bridged to to kindness also being an accelerator of helping move out of that afraid state to being more outward focused. And I'll just give you a little, I'll just give the Center for Brain Health a little plug here. They interview all sorts of really, really interesting people and make those interviews available on their website. I interviewed Jed Brewer 
years ago about some of this work and was just delighted, not at all surprised, but delighted to see him in an interview with you all as well. So tell me, what are you, I mean, you're, you're working specifically in kindness. What are, what's your specific focus and research on there? Yeah, we were in, really interested in more of the the cognitive aspect of kindness. I think there's been a lot of work or most of the work has been done looking at the more emotional kind of touchy-feely side of kindness. And I'm excited to share that, you know, kindness again is not a feeling. It really is. It's a skill. It's a cognitive skill that you can practice and you can strengthen. And so I was curious because Kindness, you know, like I mentioned, it shares this capacity to think about things more flexibly, to see them in different ways. So that kind of connects to this innovation muscle or perhaps curiosity muscle. I'm using the term muscle, but that's obviously the brain is not a muscle, but those networks, we'll say. And so, yeah, wanting, I, I was really curious about how those are connected and if, you know, what it looks like to do that uh, in a virtual space. And so we know that so much of our interactions are taking place online and we're trying to understand more and more about how kindness breaks down uh, on a social media platform as opposed to in person, which we already, we already know that there are big changes in social behavior, pro-social behaviors. You would say things in an email that you would probably never say in person or, you know, on a comment on something. So, so yeah, we actually did a study where we had college students, some were randomly assigned to a control group where we just said, hey, comment on someone's photo, you know, and then we had a, a kindness specific group where we said, hey, be be intentional, d- leave a kind comment on, on someone's photograph. And then we had them do other measures of executive function and cognition. And what we found was that the ones that did the kind comments had higher scores in innovation. So really interesting to see the connection there that, you know, being practicing kindness is connected to sort of these brain systems that are are responsible for you know that type of thinking and so wow just got that paper published it just came out a couple of weeks ago so happy to send you the link to that if you want to check it out oh yes please i mean to me that's really exciting that's a really interesting intersection of curiosity and kindness if you've got that kind of evidence of a connection to innovation that's fascinating that's very cool so I, I love that you talk about, but then have to correct that the brain isn't a muscle, but it's actually kind of useful to think of it that way, isn't it? Because because then it's so much easier to get to this idea that, oh, I can do things that will make it stronger. And one of the things you've launched is this great brain gain movement. Tell us about that and where can people learn more? Absolutely. We wanted so much of what is out there right now about the brain and about aging. And again, to tie back to what you said in the beginning of aging is just decline. We really wanted to flip the script on that and change the conversation about how people think about aging and their brain and to not accept, you know, so much as doom and gloom and doubt and disease. And it's it's really discouraging. And so I think for the longest time, people a, didn't know that they could do anything about it. It was just like, oh, you're born with what you've got. And if you lose brain cells, too bad, right? And so so we wanted to create a movement that was really about being proactive and being really optimistic and not just optimistic for the sake of being optimistic, but, but optimistic based on the research of neuroplasticity and what is possible with the brain. So the Great Brain Gain Movement is really an opportunity for people across the country to learn how to take some really simple steps 
to start to be proactive. And so this is not big additive lifestyle changes. These are just small tweaks to your day-to-day, doing the same things you're already doing, but maybe just doing it, approaching it in a different way, in a way that's a little more brain healthy. And so we have right now three different ways that you can participate in the great brain gain. The first one is the text challenge that you mentioned. And so it's a seven-day text challenge. Um, We wanted to make just a really simple on-ramp. So seven days of tips plus a little bit of science. It's a tip slash kind of an exercise that you can do, something you can implement in your day. So one week of that. Another way, we have a a quiz on our website. It's called the Helpful Harmful Quiz. So you can learn about your own habits and what's helpful or harmful and kind of just get a sense of what am I doing that I maybe don't realize is actually toxic, like the multitasking example. And then the third is we have Brain Health Week coming up. And so that is February 19th, which actually I think this is going to come out at that time. So we have, which we'll, maybe we'll get to that. Yeah. So tell us about Brain Health Week. So Brain Health Week is February 19th to 24th. It's our second annual Brain Health Week. We got the mayor of Dallas to issue an official proclamation, which is exciting. And we're just looking for ways to engage the community of all ages. So young professionals, families, children. We do have a couple events in person, but also virtual. So we're hosting a summit that is bringing together thought leaders from all different industries to really see how can we how can we bring brain health to to everyone how can we change some of these you know top down bigger systems to really get into action or having a virtual event with Ariana Huffington and another one with Sanjay Gupta so that's one that people can tune into online and then we have a bunch of community partners that are kind of involved in having their workplaces participate in the text challenge we also have an email version of the challenge if that's something that like a organization wanted to do together and the text challenge I should also mention is it's going to be running all year long so it's not just like oh you missed the week it's like you can start it at any time And it's just a really great week to, again, raise awareness and start to change the conversation around brain health. That's great. Okay. Lightning round. Okay. Why are these things good for the brain? Sunshine in the morning. Ooh, it helps set your circadian rhythm, also boosts your mood, focus, and helps you sleep better at night. Okay. Eating protein. Oh, helps to support your building muscle. It also is the building blocks for your neurotransmitters. Um, so helping your brain to really thrive and give it kind of the nutrients that it needs. Cold showers. <laughs> <laughs> this one is a great one because it helps you tackle and feel accomplished in challenge. So it's both physical and mental. It also does stimulate neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, um, improving mood and so many great health benefits for the immune system as well. Okay. Trick question. Botox. Not good for the brain. <laughs> we know that we know that Botox doesn't just stay locally at the site where it's injected. And so, anyway, it's widely it's a very common thing, and people will say that it's safe. But I feel like there's really a lot of research yet to be done to really understand the far-reaching effects. It is a neurotoxin, so I'll just say that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Okay, so before I let you go, I have my big jar of wannabe analogies. Are you game for this? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. So here it is, literal big jar. I'm going to take out three slips of paper, one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. Okay. All right. Mine is radio. How is curiosity like radio? Yours is ice. How is curiosity like ice? 
and I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go? Okay. This is what popped to mind. I'll take it. Go for it. Curiosity is like ice in that the more you say, think about it, or like if you were to suck on an ice cube or if you were to just watch it and kind of let it melt, the more it changes or the more you get or the more kind of different things you can see or experience. I like it. I like it. Perfect in this winter time to rethink about ice in that way. I love it. Okay. How is curiosity like radio? Um, I'm going to say that curiosity is like radio because, you know, if you get in the car and you turn on the radio, you never quite know what you're going to get. And it often brings new information or something thought provoking or new to you um, into your day, which is one of the reasons I love the fact that this show is on the radio. It seems like the perfect, perfect medium for it. And audience. Yours is hiccups. How is curiosity like hiccups? Let us know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Julie, holy cow, thank you so much for this. What fun. Thanks for having me. This was great. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media, Choose to be Curious, where you can share your hiccups analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Julie Frattentoni. You can find Julie on Instagram at Dr. Julie Frattentoni. And for more about the great brain gain movement, visit centerforbrainhealth.org. Links for all of it on my website, where you can also find my interview with Dr. Judd Brewer. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Mind, Body, Mind by Body Tonic via Blue Dot Sessions. So I have actually been signed up for the Great Brain Game text challenge. Although one of the days is about curiosity, I have to say that wasn't my favorite. My favorite was a day where they asked us to just stop and take a break five times a day, just five minutes. I actually had to set an alarm to make sure that I stopped and did this, but oh, was it worth it. I highly recommend it. And because I have this opportunity, here's a little taste of my conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer, who studies curiosity, addiction, and mindfulness. You know, I didn't go in thinking, like, I, I want to study or I want to understand curiosity. It came out of my own actually I was suffering I was having trouble sleeping when I started medical school and at that time I didn't know much about how my mind worked let alone my brain and you know in medical school I was going to learn about how my brain worked but I didn't really get a lot of education about how my mind worked uh-huh. uh, so I started meditating actually the first day of medical school and um, used that as an opportunity to start understanding really how my mind worked and I think I was maybe maybe I have a natural curiosity about how things work. It's kind of what led me to become a researcher and become a physician as well. Uh, But there's something about really not having a clue about how my mind works that was intriguing, uh, especially because I seemed to be tripping myself up all the time. So I started, you know, I started learning to meditate. I started learning uh, what, you know, the theories behind and the concepts behind mindfulness. And, um, you know, I would say about 20 years later now, I can say, that I had no idea that it was all going to come down to curiosity, but I can pretty definitively say that, you know, if, if you had to strip everything else away, 
uh, in terms of the utility of helping people change bad habits, it would be I would I would keep curiosity as the last thing. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.